Last five months, uh, we have been working through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we have been focusing on these first three chapters that we see um, inside of this beautiful letter as Paul is writing to a group of people whom he adores, whom he loves, who are his family in the faith. And he is deeply um, concerned for them and wants to encourage them and wants to edify them. And so as we have seen over the last five months, we've been diving into this, this crucial understanding that we need to have, and that is, what is our identity in Christ? Like, who are we in this Jesus? Because if we're in Christ, then Jesus is building both a personal life and also his church. And so a a lot of our issues revolve around this idea of a mistaken identity. We should be remembering who we are in Jesus. And because of who we are in Jesus, therefore there is also an action, a duty, a doing a practice that should be also found in those who truly have been saved. And so for the last several months, like I've said, is that, man, we've, we've been looking at doctrine. We've been looking at sound doctrine. We've been looking at identity. We've been looking at um, all of these deep truths from a divine perspective on whom God says that those of us who are in Christ really are. These are true of the elect and remember them, especially in times of great persecution, times of sorrow, times of suffering um, that will often come against God's people and his church. We cannot lose sight of who we are in Jesus. On several different documents of mine, I have written, uh, my identity is not found in being a pastor, but my identity is found in being God's Son. And so Paul is reiterating that idea over and over and over and over and over again because he understands the importance of what is at stake if we lose our identity in Christ. All right? Now, we transition as Paul transitions. In his letter, the next three chapters, as we begin today, chapter four, Paul is going to move from orthodoxy or doctrine to orthopraxy or duty. How does that new identity then play out? What is the fruit of this identity? And I'm going to tell you, maybe some of you think this is overload. I don't believe it is. But for the next, really, six and a half months, for the rest of this year, as mentioned, church, we're going to be talking about how that the very workings of Jesus, of how salvation literally plays out into every detail inside of our lives. And so there's some fun things, I think, that are fun that are coming up. We're going to be able to talk about that in regards to your marriage. We're going to be talking about that children or young people that if you're here, what does it mean to obey your parents? And all the parents are like, amen, forget about the marriage. We just need some obedience um, talks given. Um, We're going to be talking about uh, what does it mean to be an employee? What does it mean in regards to our speech? All of these sorts of ideas that if you're truly in Christ, invade All the details of your daily life. So in thinking about this, if you've worked any kind of job, we even do this sometimes inside of vocational pastoring, that many companies uh, will use a lot of different tools. Probably once a year or every few months, you are put up for an evaluation. 
you are put up for an assessment, a yearly review. And inside of these yearly reviews, um, they can be, uh, it can be determined on, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses. Uh, imagine as a pastor who had a yearly review, and uh, in my situation, my bonus at the end of the year was determined about what these guys thought about me and how I was doing as a pastor, okay? Now, personally, I've got some issues with that, but that's the way it was done where I was serving. Um, and so this isn't necessarily, though, even though we can get a little anxious about it, a little nervous about it, uh, the B Bible would allude in several different areas that we should constantly be taking a spiritual inventory. That as, as Peter would say in his letter, that we should be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. That we should not be just assuming, but that we should be uh, really evaluating, uh, evaluating having a, a, a spiritual, a Christian, a discipleship evaluation on where we are in our relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, if you could imagine with me just for a second, um, what it would be like for you to sit down with maybe one of our pastors, one of our elders, or a disciple maker in your life, and have a really honest assessment and evaluation of your relationship with Jesus. I've gone as far um, to even offer that to you. I've talked to our pastors, and after today's sermon, if you're willing to do this at some point and setting up a, a scheduled time with them, or if you have another disciple maker in your life, I'd encourage you to talk to them. But if you'd love to sit down with dinner with one of us, or coffee, or lunch, and just really talk about these things even on a deeper level, then we invite you to come speak to myself, Pastor Todd, or Pastor Justin, because we would love to have that conversation. So if you sit down, you had this gospel-centered conversation about your relationship with Jesus, what would be the results? Now, I'm going to say a lot of things today. And in saying a lot of things, our temptation is going to be, man, I hope so-and-so, <clears throat> my husband, <clears throat> my wife, <clears throat> my kids, across the aisle, I hope that they are listening to Pastor Eric today. And I want you to know, I am talking to you, not someone else. And so I want you to have this mentality of looking at these, th these thoughts, looking at what the scripture says, and wondering, again, what would be my results? Would it reveal that, man, I'm a Christian, that Jesus has saved my life? Would it reveal that, man, I'm a, a nominal Christian, which is really not a Christian, but it's belief that you're a Christian, but you're Christian by name only? Would it possibly reveal that, man, I'm not a Christian at all? That's the brass tacks of what we're trying to get down here today. What would it say? Would I be confident in the results? Would I be fearful of the results? kind of like when you've given blood at the doctor and you know you've been living an unhealthy lifestyle. There can be anxiety or nervousness, wondering what is the doctor going to say about me or if I continue in this pathway where I could end up. Would the results reflect Jesus? Would it be evident that the fruit of the Spirit is found in your life? What areas of, of obedience could be celebrated? What disobedience would you need to repent from? See, assessment can be very healthy in our relationship with Jesus. As I've mentioned, Paul has split 
this letter into two different kind of pillars. And both of them are extremely important. And if I could narrow all of that down, the sermon and the sentence for the next six and a half months would be this. Our aim is to realize that in Christ, that our lives in church are founded in Jesus as our cornerstone, our identity in Christ, and a pursuit of holiness in all areas of life. So let's get to it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the, the, the pay, excuse me, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The first thing that we notice here inside of the statement is, again, if we want to be good Bible readers, then we've got to ask the, the question, whenever it says, therefore, what is it there for? And so Paul, in this transition, is saying, everything that I'm going to say in the next half of this letter, I want you to understand that it is, it is coming from this mentality and being rooted in, in who you are inside of Jesus. Do not forget these things. But because of these things, there is something else that should be taking place. So Paul is starting out, based on what he said before, based on our identity in Jesus, Paul is going to allude to an illustration that he has given in chapter 3, verse 1, that Paul is a prisoner for the Lord. And so I don't have time to dive into that section here this morning. I preached a sermon called prisoner in Christ on Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. You can look back at our, our, our website. You can look that up. I would encourage you if you've not heard that to do so. It will help you as we are moving forward. Prisoner of the Lord. Though Paul is physically, the brother is in prison. He is in prison in Rome. He's going to be eventually beheaded for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as they try to snuff out this thing called Christianity. And yet, Paul is not diving into his suffering because of this. He's not saying, I'm a prisoner of Rome. But once again, he reiterates a higher calling, a higher identity, a higher realization of who he really is is not based upon a current circumstance, but ultimately who he is in all of eternity, past, present, and future, because he is in Christ. So Paul says that he is a, once again, that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Prisoner for the Lord. Notice what he says this next. Urge you, prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Um, in some translations, if you have a different translation, maybe it'll say things like, I implore you, or I, I, I beseech you. The, the idea behind this word that is inside of the original language is this continual begging. So Paul is continually begging them. I plead with you continually. I'm urging you. I'm imploring you. I'm beseeching you. I'm asking you desperately to do something. The first thing that he says is, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which 
you have been called. So the first thing that we're going to see is that he is continuing urging us to do is that as people who are and are resting our identity in the person and work of Jesus in his cross, in his resurrection, in his finished work, then Paul is not going to say just lay back and have a vacation until Jesus comes. But Paul is going to beg them. He's going to urge them. He's going to, to get a hold of them. He's going to, you know, shake them to get them to understand because of this, I urge you to walk. To walk. Now, the idea of walking inside of Scripture, um, this statement encompasses every aspect of your lives. According to the Old and to the New Testament, whenever we get this word picture of I'm encouraging you to walk in such a way, it is, it is talking about your actual conduct. What do you do with your time? How do you live? How does being in Christ affect the day-to-day living of your life? How does it invade the details, the mundane of life. If you're truly inside of Christ, see all of those aspects, every second, every minute, every hour of your day should be breathed out because of who is resting inside of you. And his name is Jesus. How does this identity affect your speech? How does it, again, affect your thoughts, your marriage, your work, your parenting? How does it affect the unity of the church? See, Paul is going to spend the rest of this letter working out what it means to walk inside of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time this year. We see this in other places inside of Paul's writings. He loves this term. It's one of his favorite fra- phrases. In Colossians 1.10, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and in ceasing in the knowledge of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, it says, We exhort each other, uh, one of you, to be encouraged and encourage you to be charged you and walk. Excuse man, I'm struggling. We exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or and I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I'm actually going to come back to that passage next Sunday in our sermon. So we get this picture, this, this walking, this striving, this seeking, this pursuit that we are not called to be lazy and slothful in our relationship with Jesus, but that if you have truly been saved, then there is a work, there is a practice, there is a way to live that is true of the true remnant of God, and there is a way that is contrary to that, that reveals that those who do so are not really saved. We get this picture, the next thing that it says, it's a worthy manner, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Worthy. 
inside of the original language, um, it's, it's this idea of having equal weight, right? So uh, imagine this. If you could picture just for a minute a, a scale in front of us. And on one side of that scale is your identity in Jesus. And on the other side um, is your obedience. How would your scale tip? And so when Paul's saying this inside of the original language, this was a word picture that he's painting for them, that you're to walk worthy, that the worthiness is of equal weight, that if you think that your identity in Jesus should be way up here and your practice and obedience, it's okay for it to be down here, all this does is show us your true identity. If obedience is low and identity is high or claim is high, but followship is low, then all it's saying in the assessment, you're not who you say you are. That we're to walk worthy of the calling in the manner in which we have been called. If A plus B, it equals C. And if it doesn't equal C, then there is cause for great alarm. There should be a balance where, where the goal is, is for both sides, again, to be equal, where we are to walk in such a way that our identity is in Christ, is expressed faithfully, and this illustrates that true conversion has taken place, true salvation has taken place, true adoption has taken place, that our identity and our practice are equal, therefore proving both of them to be true. Paul is pleading with the church, pursue sanctification, pursue holiness, pursue the life of which you have been called. Now, if you've been at mission for any given time, you will notice in our literature, you'll notice in how we preach on Sunday mornings, that we'll even say that, man, we are a gospel-driven church. We are a gospel-centered church. We are a gospel-driven church. Everything and anything that we do and that what we exist is wanting to be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that is true. I think that is right. I am thankful for the, the books that have been written in recent years, all pointing us back to this idea of, gossip, uh, of the gospel. And yet, my, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit afraid that in our love and pursuit of gospel-centeredness, what is often being removed in our conversations, in our literature, in our books, in our sermons, is a lack, though, of the pursuit of sanctification and righteous and holy living. There's a great book that I, there's several that I'm reading currently that I wish that I could get into your hands if I knew that you would read them with me. And one of them is by a guy, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He wrote a book called Holy in Our Holiness. And inside that book, he says, the, the reason I'm calling the book Whole in Our Holiness is because when I survey what's happening inside of American Christendom, there is a hole in our holiness. And that hole is, is that you and I don't think much or practice much holiness. And this is a problem. 
Another way of looking at holiness, as I've mentioned, is the term sanctification. If you've grown up in church very long, maybe you've heard this term, but you don't know what it means. A great theologian and scholar, J.I. Packer, who's been very influential in my life, wrote a book called Knowing God, but he's written several other books as well. One of them is called Concise Theology. I'd encourage you to get it. It's a great little resource. He's written tons of other things as well. But he defines sanctification this way. Sanctification, or in its verbal form, sanctify literally means to set apart for special use or purpose. That is, to make holy or sacred. Therefore, sanctification refers to the state or process of being set apart or of being made holy. This is true of believers. If you are truly a saved person sitting here, I am not talking about cultural Christianity. I am not talking about a person who believes, man, this is just the best way to have a good marriage or the best way to raise our kids or this is the southern comfort thing to do inside of our existence. Now, I'm talking about a really true believer. The sanctification process will, will not be something that is not easily seen, but it will be readily available in your own life, but it will also be a witness to those around you. You can look and see and go, man, that woman of God, that man of God is not who they used to be, but they're continuing to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Holiness, made holy. The term that we often use to describe this here at Mission is a term called cultivate. That's what we're getting down to. You see, in salvation, you had nothing to do with that. And yet in regards to sanctification, holiness, there is a, a, a specific percentage, I don't know what that is, but that God is making you and I responsible for that. We have something in that game. See, I used to think about these great theologians and people that we really aspire to, even inside of Christendom. Like, man, God just must be like, he just placed his hand upon them, and this is what's going on. And, and again, we see that inside the scripture, and there is some truth to that. I'm not here to belittle all of that. But, but it's interesting that when you really begin to study Christian history, that there are some key components in all of those men and women's lives that are not often seen in many of ours. A deep dedication to the reading and studying of God's word. Not just a, a momentary prayer, how do we get this through this prayer so we can get to the food as quickly as possible, but we're talking about men and women of God who have spent hours on their knees to the point of their knees becoming calloused as they seek the glory and the renown of the Lord. See, they cultivated their relationship with Jesus. They pursued it. They walked in it. They labored in it. They ran for it. They fought for this. Inside of our mentality, we often will say things again, that this is uh, what it means to be involved in prayer and fasting and scripture reading and generosity, like the farmer who, who plows the plants and he fertilizes, he puts the seeds out there. He's doing his work. 
all the while realizing he cannot bring the growth. It is God who brings the growth. But you need to get this. We need to get this this morning. It is not void of you planting the field. It is not void of you not having any labor. But this process of becoming more and more like Jesus, much of that responsibility, God has given over to his people. We see this again and again and again and again inside of the Christian understanding, inside of the gospel. We are being implored to, we are being begging, we are being proclaimed at. Don't forget your identity, but also do not neglect the labor that you are called to as Christians. Cultivation. See, no one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his or her lives. But just as surely no one can attain it without effort on his own. A great book for you to read is by Jerry Bridges called The The Pursuit of Holiness, where he talks about those very truths. God brings the growth, but you've got to work. You gotta pursue. You gotta pursue holiness. You gotta pursue salvation or continued salvation. You gotta be obedient. God has laid out command after command after command after command inside of Scripture, and He's expecting you to follow it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, we see this statement: Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in fear of God. In 1 Thessalonians, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. James is going to talk about this. Faith without works is what? That it's dead. Write down this address, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. You need to get this. I'm talking all of this this morning is because I love you. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What is the author of Hebrews? Probably Paul. We don't know exactly for sure. But whoever the author of Hebrews, what, are the, what is the significance? I mean, do you understand? That's a heck of an evaluation tool. That without the pursuit of holiness... Without sanctification, without obedience, without being distinct from the world, all that says is there is no Christ in this person. That you cannot enter into heaven and not have the fruits of these truths inside and known in their lives. See, we love to say things inside of the South. Well, I know in his heart. What the Bible would declare 
If it's in his heart, it is in his life. It is in her life. That there is no concept of this mentality if you are mentally capable and able to live in such a way that is fruitful to society and giving and good citizenship, that there is no, there's a completely foreign mentality to look at the scriptures, to study the scriptures, and believe that a man or woman can have Jesus in their heart and there be no evidence of that in their lives. You will know them by their fruit. And yet there are many people who are claiming to have a relationship with Jesus. And everyone around them that is walking around that tree sees no fruit. So, that leads to a very serious question. Because any time that we start talking about this, even those of us who are gospel-centered, gospel-driven, all about the grace and mercy of God, then it poses a very serious question. I have a friend right now who's a pastor, and uh, this friend is, is Reformed. Um, he is Southern Baptist, and um, they are coming after him inside of his church because they're declaring that he doesn't believe in the security of the believer. Did you hear what I just said? Like, he's Southern Baptist. He's Reformed. And their number one charge against this brother is that he doesn't believe in the, eternities of, uh, the eternal security of the believer. He does not believe that if you're really saved, you will always be saved. That's what they're saying. You know how ridiculous that is? But because he's calling church folk to repent and to true salvation... They're assuming them, and, and, and they're ready to kick him out of the church for preaching the gospel. So I understand the tension. It is relying in every one of us. We, we have to ask this question. So how do we reconcile who we are in Jesus, those first three chapters? We're saved by grace and all the passages that tell us to do something. How do we reconcile those two things? How do we reconcile that you and I are saved by grace, and yet there are all these passages that tell us to do something, to work, to run, to strive, and to fight? How do we bridge those two things? Well, I would argue today that it primarily, to answer that, gets scaled down to two main ways of living and thinking. The first one when we look at the landscape of American Christianity, it, I would say that there is an appearance um, or more of an allegiance to a counterfeit Christianity than a biblical one. And it's all done and, and, and shown to us by the way that people will answer that question. If I am saved by grace, how do I reconcile with all the things that God tells me to do? Two different ways of thinking. Here we go. The first one is called legalism. Legalism. You're saved by grace, but you got all this stuff to do, and upon a, accomplishing the checklist for God, then you get salvation. This is the issue that's taking place inside of the book of Galatians, right? That they need to be both Christian, yes, but first Jew and be circumcised, and do all of these other things, or they're not really saved. 
This is legalism. This is salvation through your obedience. You obey, and God finally, he's keeping records, you know, of how many times you've been good, how many times you've been bad. You hope that one day you're going to stand before God. He's going to open up the book of your life, and you're going to hope in the good column that you've got more good things than the bad column. And because of that, God's going to say, enter in, my good and faithful servant. So legalism is one mentality. The other one is a big fancy word. And you guys know that I don't like slamming big fancy words at you that don't have a purpose. So I'm going to give you the big fat word, and then I'm going to break it down in a very elementary way so that we can understand it. Time out. Game off. Let's fix this. I saw some of you and you were following my neckline like a snake. You're like, it's not going to stay now. Now that I made a joke about it. All right, the, the second way of thinking is called antinomianism. All right? So the first way is legalism. You're saved by your obedience. You're saved by doing all these things. This is how you're going to receive salvation. Antinomianism is the exact opposite of that. We're saved, and so there is, there is no need for law-keeping. We're saved, so you don't really have to obey. So the first one, legalism, you're saved by law-keeping, you're saved by obedience, all these sorts of things. Over here, antinomianism is this belief that, man, because Jesus has saved you, obedience is an option all those lists of things that Jesus will say, not just in the Old Testament, but the things that Jesus and the gospel writers will say inside the New Testament, those are really suggestions. Those are options. You're saved and you don't have to obey because Jesus has got you. Two totally different ways of looking at salvation. Two totally different ways of walking in the manner. Everybody understand that? So I, I began to ask myself this question. Legalism or antinomianism? Which one are we more prone toward here at Mission? As a pastor and a member of Mission Church who spends a lot of time with you and in coffee shops and local restaurants and missional communities with you, um, there may be a, a few exceptions to this. But I would argue to the, this morning that the people of Mission Church are more prone to antinomianism than legalism. Another way to say this is that, that I'm concerned as one of your elders, I'm concerned as one of your pastors, that we lean more towards salvation without obedience than we would ever say, you better do X, Y, and Z to be saved. Again, maybe a few exceptions in here. But again, this is not some, I'm not speaking at a conference. I don't preach to the podcast. Preach as a shepherd to you. I'm not talking about people I don't know. 
but I'm talking about what is said in our missional communities, what is said over coffee, what is said over lunch, and what is seen with these eyes. That I don't, I haven't found many of, or any of you, who would walk up into anybody and say things like, you've got to do X, Y, Z to be saved. But I would see and hear a lot of people justifying disobedience because they have been saved. Or at least they would proclaim it. Now, the church I grew up in, legalism. You better do this. You better do this, 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 exactly this way. And if you don't do this exactly this way, then you are going to go to hell. I don't believe that we are that here at Mission Church. And I don't know which one of those two things is scarier. Both need Jesus. Both need salvation. Both need to come to a true understanding of who we are in Jesus, what he has done. And because of what he has done, and because if we're truly in him, then there is a life for you and I to live. There are many of us who have gathered here this morning that would, would claim salvation and yet by their walk, and I'm not just simply talking about the big things, I, I'm talking about in the small things, and yet by the day-to-day activities of their lives, where their minds are, where their heart is, where they put their money, there is little to no concern for obedience. I've got Jesus We would probably never claim allegiance to either one of these. If I was to say to you this morning, are you a legalist? You'd say no. And if I was to use a big fancy term, are you an antinomian? No. And yet our practice can easily illustrate and does illustrate the true conditions of our hearts. Have you ever come to church before and felt like you were not saved? Not in every case, but I want you to get this this morning. Sometimes that feeling that you're getting is because you aren't. It's because you're not. Not every time. Not in all cases. Sometimes that's the trick of the enemy. Since Satan and death wants to make you believe that you're not really a Christian, he's wanting you to forget your identity. But other times, it is the Holy Spirit. And he's at work. And he's showing you and he's revealing to you, you're not. We've got to learn to discern with ourselves and with others than what is truly being said of me, brothers and sisters, I love you this morning. We must quit deceiving ourselves. 
True salvation will produce good fruit. However, we have fooled ourselves into believing that a counterfeit gospel where people will claim to be saved, yet there's uh, no fruit of salvation is evident in their lives. The deception goes even deeper because people can be very moral without Jesus. I, I mean, how many of you grew up like this? I don't smoke. I don't chew tobacco. I don't drink alcohol. I don't cuss or kick cats, though they may deserve that. Lie. I don't steal. I don't cheat. All these sorts of things. You've grown up and we can deceive ourselves. And they can list all of these things. We can make these lists of all these things that are terrible and wretched that we don't do. But if we really sit down and evaluate, maybe we can say, man, we don't do all of these things. But in the do column, is there anything listed? See, holiness and sanctification is not just about God bringing to the surface all the dirty sins in our lives, but holiness in the pursuit of sanctification is actually becoming obedient in what God has declared and stop justifying and saying, well, I, if God's got a list of 10, I'm pretty good with about seven, so I'm hoping that eventually he's just going to stand before him and he's going to say, ah, you did pretty good, seven out of 10. Brothers and sisters, if you think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, there is a bad reading of Scripture. Do you not grieve over the fact that even one lack of not doing what God has deemed us to do, that it is grieving to him, that he hates it, that Jesus not only died on the cross for the child molester, but also had to die on the cross to the member who doesn't fulfill their commitments. Jesus dies. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. I hear this. P Pastor Eric, well, I don't read the Bible. I don't pray. I don't give. All I know is this. I love Jesus. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John 2, 3-4, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. This is this New Testament. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Brothers and sisters, that is not thus saith Eric Baker, that is thus saith the word of God. Sinclair Ferguson in his new book called The Whole Christ says this, because I know right now some of you are saying, man, this seems like legalism. Sinclair Ferguson says this, it was not legalism for Jesus to do everything his father commanded him. Nor is it for you and I. See, those of you who are really kind of prone to a rebellion, all right, we know who you are. We love you. 
See, the religious guy over here is saying, look at all these rebellious people. The rebellious people are looking at the, the people who are more prone toward legalism. And, and, and they're saying things like, man, they're just fuddy-duddy. They're strange. That mentality is for pastors. Not, not us just common folk. We'll have that mentality about it. And yet none of us, when Jesus has said, I've come to do not my will, but the will of the Father. I've come to be obedient unto death for Jesus. And yet none of us will read the scripture and say, this Jesus guy, he's a legalist. Every imperative in scripture, that's, that means every command, everything that you're told to do, you know what you're responsible for? Every one of them. The pursuit of every one of them. It's not legalism. The pursuit of godliness is not legalism unless you're saying it, that that's what you have to do to be saved. That is not what we're saying here today. What we are saying is, or what we're in danger of here is another quote by Jerry Bridges when he says this, many Christians have what we call, uh, might call cultural holiness. See if this is not true of us. They adapt to the character and behavior pattern of the Christians around them. As the Christian culture around them is more or less holy, so these Christians are more or less holy. But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character and nature of God. If you are a Christian, do we know what the word Christian means? Little Christ. So imagine all these people, maybe in our churches, maybe in our community, maybe in our city, who are claiming they fill out the census Christian. And if you were to watch their lives, are they acting like little Jesuses? It wouldn't make sense for us to make that connection, would it? And yet many of us are simply looking at everyone else. And so we hear Christians doing this, and so we all automatically believe that, that we have license to do that. That we see our pastors, and it's often been said, and there's probably a lot of truth to this, that the church will never outgrow its sanctification than that of its pastors. See, I believe that Christianity has lost its weirdness. We've lost our distinctness. I remember as a young pastor, I was in my office one day, and all of a sudden, I always got a little paranoid when the intercom came directly to my phone. Our, our leadership pastors, they, they called me up to the office. They said, Baker, come up to the office. Immediately, sweat began to pour, high anxiety, and immediately I began to think, what have I done, dot, 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 now? I get called to this office, and I sit down on these couches, and there's two executive pastors sitting in front of me, and, and they, again, they, they did this very calmly on this account. This one, calm, calm voices, 
They told me, they said, um, Eric, we know that you've been doing something of this effect. I was doing this kind of love, sex, and dating talk with some college students or high school students at the time. And I was trying to paint biblical boundaries for these college students. And one of the talks, we began to ask the question, or they began to ask the question, well, how far can we go, right? Anybody been in that youth group or that church setting? That's always fun. <laughs> There's former youth pastor right back there. He knows exactly what I'm talking about, <laughs> okay? And these pastors, they told me that I needed to, I could no longer tell youth groups or college students that they probably shouldn't kiss before they get married that I could not tell them that. Now, every parent in here who loves Jesus, you want me to be your youth pastor, don't you? Thank you, Brian. Okay? Don't you want me to tell your kids? That's probably a good practice is to abstain from that because everyone who is of age in here, let's all face it, gentlemen, if you go down that road... It is much harder to stop, is it not? This is the time for you to wake up, dudes. Amen, right? We are all prone to go down to that path. And they told me I could no longer do that. And here's their example. Did you and Laura kiss before you got married? Yes. My response but Eric Baker is not the standard for these people. Jesus is. I'm not their standard. I've done lots of things that I hope that these, these young people and these college students would never do. I am not their standard. Jesus is their standard. And Jesus says, it is not about how far you can go, but it is about how holy you can be. For I am holy, you be holy also. He is the standard. He is the pursuit. Our holiness not rest in something that we can generate, but our holiness rests in the most holy one. It is in his character. It is in his nature. It is who he is. And through that, he summons us as well to be holy, as imperfected, uh, imperfect and ugly and messy and all those sorts of things that it is. He's the standard. You don't want to be like Eric Baker. You want to be like Jesus. He is the standard. Let us pursue that and his glory and his goodness. So all of this pursuit, all of what we're talking about, all of this obedience, all of these sorts of things would say that we, we, we must pursue this Jesus, that we must love this Jesus, that we must pursue his holiness, we pursue his obedience because we want to get to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you reform types that are in this room, those of us who have a very high view of the sovereignty of God, please stop blaming God and His sovereignty for your disobedience. Please stop doing that. we got to stop it. Because I hear it all the time. Well, I just need to pray about it. And God say, keep praying, but do it. Do something. Don't just, well, I need to pray for me. No, go do it. Go be obedient. Pray as you're doing it. 
But what we want to do is huddle up or go to our prayer closets at our, wherever that is, if we even have that. And just, we're waiting for this miraculous hand of God to cause you to levitate. And I'm telling you, the only person who can levitate in this church is Cash Baker. And we still don't know how he does it. But you're waiting for a glowing light. God's given you his word. He's given you his word. Don't be more reformed than Jesus himself. Don't come out here and just say, well, I'm just right where God wants me to be. Pursue it. Scriptures would say that we're to be what? Hearers and doers of the word. Some of us aren't obedient because we don't know the word. And that's true of many of us in this room. But all you brothers who do know the words, many of us can swell with pride over how much we have heard. And because we know a lot, we justify our lack of obedience. I want you to understand that a picture that I see inside of Scripture that I paint is a picture of a Christian life that has a Scripture in one hand and your hand on a plow, your other hand on a plow. Some of us don't have our hand on the Word or on the plow. Some of us have a deep grip. We love some books. But there is no plowing. And both of those scenarios are unbiblical. Is it not, as Isaac Watts would say, that in view of the cross and resurrection, that His love for us is so amazing, that it's so divine, that it demands my soul, my life, my all. Is it not, as Kevin DeYoung would say, personal holiness is not measured by preaching a sermon? Or excuse me, I said the first part, he says the second part. Personal holiness is not measured by preaching a sermon where hundreds repent and believe, or walking on water, or your shadow healing people. No, holiness is measured in the very details of your life. This is where Kevin DeYoung would say that holiness is the sum of a million little things. It may be growth by centimeters, but it's growth. It's pursuit. It's holiness. It's sanctification. So in conclusion, we are to what? We urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the, the, the calling to which you have been called. Remember, the ultimate goal in our holiness is Jesus. The ultimate gift in our holiness is Jesus. It is not those around us being pleased with what they see in us. No, the ultimate goal, because much of holiness is done in secret. 
Much obedience should be done in secret. As the Bible would tell us, give and, and, and do so secretly. Most fasting is done in secret. Most devotional lives, it's, it's done in secret. Most evangelism is done in secret. But the ultimate goal of all of those things is, is not, again, badges. I never understood why we give people in certain churches, you know, pins for them to wear on their lapels on Sundays because they've come to Sunday school so much. No, the goal of all of this, the pursuit of, of all of our lives, how we spend every moment, every second, every dollar, every experience, everything in our lives is because when we look at the first three chapters and we see the grand nature of God and how much He has loved us and how much He has lavished Himself upon us about how much we were dead but we've been made alive and, and we have done nothing to deserve this, all we can do then is to pursue the glory. We long to be with this Jesus. We long to get Him. We want Him. You either have, as they said it together for the gospel conference, you will have either you will either be ob obedient to get a blessing, so you think, or you will be obedient from a blessing, and that is the gospel. See, there there must be true union with Christ before we can understand communion with Christ. Where there is true union, there will be an increasing desire for communion. What do we mean by communion? It's not what we're just about to do here in a moment, but it, it's relational. It's fellowship. It's all these sorts of things. Union. How many times are we being told we are in Christ? If you are in Christ, you're going to seek to be with Christ. And how do we be with Christ? We are obedient to Christ. Where there is true union, there will be this communion. And yet for many in American Christianity, there is a profession of faith without the practice of faith. I mean, some of us in this room, we are married legally. That's union. But there is no communion. How's that working out for you? You can be a parent. That's a legal guardian. That's union. It is from your very flesh or in the adoptive process you have consumed and said, this is mine. It's my kid. We can have that union. And yet how many families are estranged from their kids? How does that grieve you? Because there is no communion with them. There's no fellowship. We can attend a church gathering. We can even tell people, man, I go to such and such church. And yet we're not obedient in becoming members. So there's a lack of communion. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that holiness does not happen without pursuit. As we pursue it more and more and more and more, as we cultivate our relationship with Jesus, so will our affections be stirred more and more and more, revealing more to us the sins that often lie in the details of our lives. And it will be our joy to see those removed through the working of the Holy Spirit, empowering our efforts to put these sins to death. 
walk worthy of the calling. If we had time this morning, we would go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and we would look at all those beautiful things that God has done for us, whom he has said that we are. We are his blessing. We are in his inheritance. We have been chosen. We have been predestined. We have been effectually called. All these things that the scripture says about us. The only response that we would have then is to pursue him in obedience with all that we have. Not for salvation, but from salvation comes these truths. If you're not a fanatic for Jesus, then what are you? You're lost. As one of your pastors, as your brother in Christ, as your friend, I'm begging you to respond in obedience to the gospel. Another way to look at this idea of holiness is to ask this question Am I healthy? We all know that good health does not come naturally, but it's something that every one of us have to work toward. Is our church, is it healthy? If you're a single person, are, are you holy? Are you obedient? In your marriage, are you holy and obedient? If you're a, a kid, a teenager, a young adult, are you holy and obedient? If you're a worker in here, are you holy and obedient? Is there evidence of practical holiness in your life? Do you desire and strive after holiness? Do you ever grieve over your lack of holiness? And seek God to be more holy. Not to, but from not to earn, but because it's been given. Not to determine your own identity, but because your identity has been determined for you. Some of you are here today as we go toward communion. You're a Christian, and you get this today. You understand that tension. You, you understand that you're saved by grace and yet God is constantly revealing small things. This week, God revealed to me some things I did as a teenager that I had forgotten about. And I didn't just go, well, that's when I was a teenager. But I pled, I, I was pleading with God, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did that 25 years ago. Pre-Christian. Lord, forgive me for that that God would reveal the grand things, but also the sin and the details, that He would remove those sins, but also the sins of not doing what He said. So you're in that tension, brother or sister. You're a Christian, and there's evidence. The assessment would say you are. For others of you who have gathered in this room, I plead with you, I beg to you, repent and come to know Jesus, the real 
Jesus. And He will transform everything in your life where this pursuit to many of you sounds like a lot of duty right now. But I want you to know for those of us who are in Christ who are pursuing Jesus, it is our delight. We can honestly say, thank you, God, for revealing sin to me from 25 years ago. But also, Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing sin to me in the last five minutes. Or, Lord Jesus, I see that this is an area of weakness. Instead of justifying that area of weakness, Lord, I want to pursue you more in that area of weakness. Come to know this real Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn in faith. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will know by the fruit of the gospel. Let's pray.